A reading from the book of John. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in wrong about in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another, one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you, that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids are invited to Kids Church.
In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's where Emily's reading ended for us today. And those of you who have been here know we've been walking through the Gospel of John since the beginning of New Year until um, uh, Easter is sort of the journey we're taking. Um, the first half, we walk through the miracles, the things that Jesus is saying and doing, um, and his actions. In this last half in John's Gospel, we clearly hear from him his prayers for his disciples. Now, I, I haven't explained this again in a little bit, but Chris made this um, way of capturing uh, the 40-day journey we're in that the church calls Lent with 40 days of, of light and dark, light and dark, um, and then uh, one half black square for Good Friday and one fully black square for Holy Saturday in which that going away becomes complete for us, this going away that Jesus talks of. And what I think is hard, at least for me, is, is we've been going through these portions in Lent that Jesus is praying for his disciples, is the distress that's overtaking them. I won't leave you as orphans, he says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. This, this um, ways in which the world is going to, to persecute them in the last one, that they'll be thrown out of synagogues, the places of community that they found and resided in. And more than that, which I think is interesting, is that the people doing so, um, and this is true, I think, for Christians across time, will think they're doing you a favor. Think that they are right in what they're aiming to do. I mean, it's one thing when somebody does something sort of malicious towards you, and you know that they know they're being malicious. We're not naive. We know that happens. It's another thing when somebody does something malicious to you, and you th they think that they are in the right. That they are the one bringing about God's will, God's kingdom. They're silencing the right things. That often can hurt more and be more pointed in the sense of which, why now is this coming to my path? That somebody robbed from me, when they're a robber, makes sense. When somebody throws me out of the place I belong because they think they know it better, brings a different pain and hurt with it. But so that's been this sort of way of moving through these, these teachings that Jesus has for his disciples. Here we've talked about he pulls back. He's not speaking out in the world anymore. He's not speaking out in the community. He is with his disciples in this upper room sort of proclaiming to them what is going to happen next and how Christ is going to equip them and meet them in that. Through this one he calls the advocate, the spirit, the counselor that's coming. But so often I think when I read these passages they sound like um, promises of good news, which they are, but they don't have the prerequisite um, struggle. We, we read what should have been more of a, um, an Easter psalm this morning from Park about this, that, that my uh, sackcloth will be turned into joy and that, that God will sort of redeem me in that way, is that God is victorious, is that even if I go down to the dust, God hears me. And the reason we read that um, in Lent when it would be more typical of an Easter one is to hear the first half of those sentences. The struggle is real so that the joy can be even deeper. So often I think we narrow our Christian life into this sort of like 
There's, there's just joy. There's dancing. We've been transformed, this, that, and the other. But here Jesus tells his disciples from the birth analogy to several others that, that there is um, trouble coming. In this world, you will have trouble. To try and be a better Christian and to say, I only live in the hope, is to deny the reality of what we live in in the moment. And that's, I think, a real temptation for us. I mean, there's a, I should say there's a reverse temptation to act like there's no joy. Um, I think we find that in some places too, is that, you know, I'm the most authentic Christian because I speak of my doubts and my anxiety and this, that, and the other. And that's good. But no joy means you've cut off the greatness in which is coming in the gospel. But to be all joy, to not know of the agony, the pain, People will throw you out of where you belong and think they're doing God a favor. Through your witness, the world be proved wrong about three things. That's what we're going to talk about in today's passage. And then to know that the peace that we need comes from Christ, comes from the other side, makes it all the more meaningful. We live our lives often in small registers, I think. We've talked about this with the Psalms before here, but... When I'm really happy, I'll allow myself to go like plus five. And when I'm really sad, I'll allow myself to go like minus five. Um, and so I've got this very, very small range in which I'll live my life. But if you read the Psalms, or if you read any part of the Bible, you've got like negative a thousand, so much that you would be like, um, cheer up, man. I gave um, uh, a friend of mine who'd recently gone through some loss uh, C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Desert, uh, Observed. And it was funny, he gave it back and he was like, that was dark. I'm not even that far gone. I was like, well, uh, book recommendations are always hit and miss. Sorry about that one. Um, and then even on the joy side, you find somebody in the Psalms often who's so happy you would be like, simmer down, Relax. But that is the world we're sort of invited into in this joy and peace that Christ is going to leave us. This ways in which we are going to be moved by the Spirit of God is to live eyes wide open to the depths of struggles, the depths of fallenness, the depths of hurt and pain. And not only that, but to also have our lives open to the depths of peace, of love, of the thing and joy that comes from another world that will be complete. And so too is the church to find a way to live into both those troops. Paul finds, finds this, is, is, is his suggestion is that perhaps you should be sad with those who are sad and rejoice with those who rejoice. Become an ally in that way for people and serve and the trouble that's coming is, is beginning to set in for the disciples here. Jesus grows in their despair. What I find interesting is in the next chapter, uh, Jesus prays for his disciples. There's that portion at the end of this one, which I, as Emily was reading, it came to me when they're like, oh, we see that you don't need to be asked questions. And he comes back at them, but it almost seems like they're still not getting it. They're like, oh, you're going to the Father. You've come down. You've said that ten times. We have more questions. Because he always seems to be sensing their questions. This is their way to sort of say, look, at this point, we realize we don't have a clue 
What that brings Christ to, in the next passage, is praying for them. Next week, we'll walk into what does it mean that Christ prays for us and how Christ prays for us. But this passage this week starts with this um, truth, which is this, as Jesus is going away, the Spirit is coming towards us. That as Jesus leaves, the Spirit comes and brings a presence. And this, this reality, this truth, Jesus thinks is better for us. It is better for me to go away and for the Spirit to come and be among you. The Spirit, as we've looked at, will be this reminder, this counselor, this legal advocate for all those things in which he has said. And even in this passage, he says that this will lead you into more. The church in random portions of church history has gotten really obsessed with the historical Jesus, trying to figure out everything the historical Jesus might have said, done, what it all means in his context. And I love that passage in John that we have today where he says... um, that the Spirit will bring them into, he will guide you into all truth, means that even if we could know everything about his historical life without the Spirit, we would not be guided into all truth. There's something in which Christ sending the Spirit comes to us and makes it more active, um, joy and peace in a different way. It abides within us as we abide in it. And that, I think, is one of the challenges for us is to, to open ourselves up to this, this gathering spirit in our lives, this advocate who Christ is sending amongst us, who empowers us into ministry and life to be his church. And so too it is, you can understand their anguish as they've been walking with one whom when they sit with and interact with and listen to Cheech and watch what he does is they feel as if they are with God. They feel as if to say that he is light and life would be true. And what this light and life they walk with tells them is I'm going away. I'm going to another spot. That despair, I mean, even if you walked with somebody like that, who you saw in this, and they're like, don't worry, I'm going to the Father, um, and then I'll be able to send an advocate for you, you could understand the confusion and pain and angst in that. It's when Christ breathes the spirit of peace on them that they begin to get it. The disciples' transformation happens after Easter. It happens in the gift of the Spirit. And so too, their, their lostness, I think, comes through in these passages in the way in which this is real hurt of a friend leaving, someone going to someplace else. He's asked them at the beginning of this passage, none of you asks where I am going, which one of them has, but rather you are filled with grief because I have said these things. Very clearly, I tell you, it's good for, for, for that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come for you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This presence, this reminder will come and abide among you. Will be present in this community of people. And what Christ gives them is sort of this, this mission in which we've been empowered into with the church. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin, about righteousness, and about justice, judgment. Um, 
when he says that we'll have trouble in the world, or in the last passage where because we abide and our root is someplace else, the world doesn't um, uh, agree with us, that we are out of step with the world. To say then and remind us that, hey, when the Spirit comes among you, it will prove the world wrong. It's like, okay, well, now it makes sense that they may not like us. Because we all love being proved wrong, don't we? Um, Roosevelt, before church, brought the bulletin up to me and said, I want to talk to you about some mistakes in here. Um, I said, well, I want to talk about some mistakes in your life. Um, which is normally how we respond to those things. Um, the, I always tell Kelly, you can, you can justify your bad behavior by pointing out somebody else's worst behavior. Um, and that's, that's an MO for some ways. Anyways, um, that, that Christ's spirit, or the spirit that he's going to give us, is one that comes to prove the world wrong. Comes to prove that they are wrong about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. And he gives short descriptions of these things, about sin because they do not believe in me. Sin in John's gospel, we haven't really talked about this yet, is not a moral category. Uh, This was Gail O'Day, who, who I read this in this week, but is a theological category. Sin is not a moral category. You do wrong actions, this, that, and the other. Sin in John's gospel is often put on as a theological category. The wrong ideas about what is right, the wrong ideas about who God is as he relates to us, that is where sin resides. Now, if you think about it, I think it can make a lot of sense in how when we act out of what we think is our highest good, then we hope we're in alignment with that. And if we have ideas about that behavior which is wrong, theologically, not just the behavior, we try to act away from that. If we are wrong about what's, uh, Frederick Daryl Bruner put it this way, wrong about what's wrong, then how will we find our way to the correct path? I think this is interesting. we're wrong about what's wrong and so much of when you go to a doctor is you don't want them to be wrong about what's wrong. I ask a lot of follow-up questions, as most of you do, just to make sure that what they're saying is the actual path you should go on. Because if they're wrong about what's wrong, we, we should take out your gallbladder. Are you sure that's what's wrong with me? Because now I have no gallbladder, but I still have digestive issues. I know the person that happened to. It wasn't me, by the way. Um, that they, if they begin to say, hey, this might be the thing that, that you need to correct and they're wrong, then it only just creates more and more. What Jesus is saying is, is the Spirit comes and reveals that we've been wrong about what's wrong. We've been wrong about what we should go towards and what we should go away from. And more so in this way that, that light in a different passage, John loves this language of light and darkness. That what is dark, we will call light. And what is light, we will call dark. That gets into the crux of the theological problem there, is that in, in the way in which we are wrong about sin, we have this tendency to look at what is dark and say, that is light, that is good. 
And we, in our own darkness, will say that, that, that what is light is only revealing and damning, and that must, too, be extinguished. One of the Christian virtues, I was, I was talking to somebody about this week, that I think is most relevant in the modern world at times, is this one of forgiveness. And we've seen several instances in courts throughout the country where somebody normally offers forgiveness for an ill that's been done to them. And what happens is, particularly on social media, but in other places you'll see editorials that say, they have no right to offer that forgiveness. Justice has not been paid. This person still needs that penalty. This person still needs this. What they see as light, or what we know as light, they call dark. Forgiveness becomes something we barter over in the modern world. Forgiveness becomes something that needs to have the proper conditions to be met by it. The unfortunate thing for us is every week, and many of us daily pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. It's not a lot of conditions that come with that. And mostly it's so that... Um, Mostly it claims the reality is that I'm one in need of forgiveness as well. Wrong about what is the right path. Wrong about what is wrong. Wrong about sin. Righteousness because I am going to the Father. Jesus in the Gospels is crucified as a criminal. He, the light, is crucified as one he, as if he belonged to the dark. What he's going to prove the world wrong is about how they've judged him. This is one of the, the themes throughout John, is that this is a big court case. And there are witnesses, that's another language from John, who testify to this light and testify to what he is, and there are counter-witnesses. And what happens is in the, in the final vindication of the Spirit coming and us being gifted with his Spirit, we show that the world was wrong about what they thought was right. They were wrong when they pushed Christ out of the world. They were wrong in rejecting that path. He, the innocent one, we proclaim the guilty one. And he goes to God and is seated in power. We're wrong in the ways in which we judge this one who came to help us. One of the things that we've talked about in the Bema discussion group is he talks about how we're in Exodus, that God is taking them out of Exodus, but he has to get, uh, or Egypt, but he has to get Egypt outside of them. The Spirit is going to convict the world of what it's wrong, and in the process will also convict us of where we're wrong. God has to get the world out of us in some ways. And where you can see me longer about just judgment because the prince of the world now stands condemned. The world is wrong about who won. You can look at the cross and look at who won and say it looks like Rome has won today. It looks like Jesus has lost. It looks like the powers of darkness have conquered again. It looks like that this is still going to be business as usual. What Christ says, they're wrong about who won. That the prince of the world now stands condemned. Now in classic John language, you'll see this in the book of Revelation, he stands condemned, but the final 
um, execution or tossing them to the lake of fire, which is, happens in the book of Revelation, has not happened yet. But the disciples are the people who know that the condemnation has happened of that one. They know that the prince of the world, that Satan, has been condemned and that his time and days are numbered. In the book of Revelation, one of the scenes also related to a birth scene in uh, Revelation 12, um, uh, Satan and the Satanist hinge angels are cast from heaven by St. Michael. They're not yet fully destroyed. But that the world is wrong about what wins in this age. It's wrong about who's in charge. And for us, I think as Christians, this real, realizes all our false ideas and illusions. I think one of the greatest challenges I've had as a Christian life, in my Christian life often is, and it's, I think it's a terrible um, grievous sin that, that only makes sense when you live with it long enough, is not that I doubt God, but I doubt that God has any affection towards me. Or even that God might just be mad at me. Or God just might be placing things in my life to make my life difficult. Wrong about who the prince of the world is. Wrong about sin, wrong about righteousness, wrong about uh, um, the judgment is all bound up in that feeling. And so does the spirit that I need to cure me in that angst, to reveal something other. And the spirit often does reveal the ways in which I am wrong about that. Um, but it's weird. We, we have these arguments to try and get people to believe in God, um, but we never really try to get them to believe in, in the way that God is with us. Um, as if believing in God would just solve it all. Um, that's not really the way it works. It's the God who comes to us, whose spirit is amongst us. The God who wins at the cross. Those are the things in which we are called into. And so the Spirit comes and empowers the church to be and live in that way. Jesus goes on to tell them about that he is going to go away, um, but he has much more to say that they cannot bear and that the Father will glorify him in that way. But then he continues on into another passage about which in the disciples' grief will turn to joy. In a while, a little while, you will see me no more, and after a while, you will see me again. Here the disciples ask, what do they mean? In a little while you will see me no more. In a little while you will see me because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Um, trying to get the right passage up there. And Jesus saw they wanted to ask them about this. Are you asking one another what I mean by uh, what I said? In a little while you see me more, and the after a while you will see me. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the wild world rejoices. Getting back into that living in the fullness of what God has given to us. We will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy, though can't skip the grieving. You will grieve. 
but your grieving will turn to joy. And he uses this analogy, which comes from many spots in the Old Testament. Um, Brian read us one instance from Isaiah with that, where um, what Israel, what this new world is, is birthed in many ways. And what happens with that is that there is pain, and that pain is forgotten as the new thing comes to be. Woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when the baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that the child is born into the world. We exist through that pain. Paul will use this language in Romans too, that, that the world is um, and groans in agony, waiting for this new world to come. Uh, Brené Brown has this wonderful phrase where she talks about faith. In old language, Finer O'Connor said it this way, a lot of people think faith is an electric blanket, but in fact, it's the cross. Brené Brown talks about faith. She went, as she was going through her journey of sort of becoming vulnerable and all the things that come along with Brené Brown's journey, but she says she went to a pastor at some point and she was like, can you give me something to numb it? Isn't that what I do when I come to church is that you help us pacify it? And he said, faith, if you come here, is more like a midwife. It's supposed to hurt. It acknowledges the pain. It doesn't numb you to the realities of what's happening. So too, I think that what Christ is telling us is, is this, that faith is not a numbing to the realities that what has happened. But if we stay awake, on the other side, there is new birth. There is new life. And there's joy that the child is born. So now with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice. No one will take away your joy in that day and you will no longer, uh, in that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Till now you have not asked anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. But Jesus begins to describe in this passage is prayer again. And one of the ways in which we um, often, I think, are confused as prayer, at least I was for a long time, was it seemed like my job was to go and just plead with the Father. Or, or again, bad theology is, is maybe one of the challenges of my life. <laughs> um, to plead with the Father, to get the Father to pay attention to me, this, that, and the other. And what Christ begins to teach them, and Paul picks up this theme too, is that we now have somebody there in Jesus whose spot we move into. Because we have lived and been bound with that one, that's why we pray, Abba, Father. As the Spirit resides in us, Christ is there as the one whom we pray to, and that prayer then radiates up to the Father. And the Father is not in anguish. Father, the Father gave us Jesus for that purpose, to have one whom we can pray to who is human, and that that radiates into that spot. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming where you're no longer... Um, use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. And that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because he loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving and going back to the Father. 
This uh, is one of those things I talked about earlier. Is it's got this V shape to it in John's gospel, this that I came from the Father, I entered the world, and now I'm going back to the Father. It's very clearly what John keeps trying to say, is that Christ comes to us as light and life, as the Son of the Father. And then he goes back to that spot, and then his Spirit animates us in the meantime. It gives us life. It guides us into peace, into life. And so, too, this brings us... Um, I just wanted to say just a little bit about the end of the passage um, before we end today. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact, come Ben, will you be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. And he closes with, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's these final words before he prays for us. There's first an acknowledgement that Christ aims to leave us with peace. I'm giving you my peace. And in that, Again, going back to what he said about what the Spirit is going to prove to the world through us or how we'll be thrown out or how we'll be persecuted or that our root is not in the world. In this world, you will have trouble. There's a phrase in in the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, Solzhenitsyn is saying how they rounded up all the the nuns because that was easy to do because they dressed a certain way. And, and they tried to extinguish the faith in Russia at that time. And he says there was a woman who wrote this poem that said, you can pray as much as you want, as only if it's loud enough so that God can hear you. In this world, you will have trouble. There was a, when I was going through that, there was a, that was when the woman in Britain got arrested for praying, no signs, no yelling, no protesting, for praying outside of an abortion clinic. Aside from the politics of it, and get arrested for praying in silence. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. This is where Christians get lost, I think, sometimes. In this world, you will have trouble, so make sure you win everything <laughs> so that you don't have trouble. No, but what he says to us in the end is, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The Spirit will prove to us that we, the church, before, uh, the church is this um, representative, the repentant missionary is one of the terms I like. Francis Bufford calls them the universal league of the guilty. Um, we, We know we're guilty. Um, the Spirit will prove that we, too, had previous conceptions where we were wrong about sin, where we were wrong about righteousness, and we were wrong about who's in charge. I've told you these things that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let us pray. 
God, you have gathered your disciples to hear this message from you. That as you go away, one is coming to us, the advocate, the counselor, the paraclete. And through this, we will find in our own way we've been wrong about what sin is, about what righteousness is, wrong about who's in charge and judgment. So too, we invite your spirit into our hearts and lives that it may awaken within us the truths that you speak to us. And through this, may we hear that grief comes when the world rejoices. But so too, we will have joy from you that while there is pain and birth, when the new world comes, when the fullness comes, there will be great rejoicing. You will turn our mourning into dancing. And so too, as we live these realities, draw us into your peace. Give us awareness that in this world we have trouble. It's not for us to solve, but to trust and to believe into you who overcomes. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.